Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 36. Uh, I was literally on an airplane and wondering what I was going to write next. Hmm. And I said, how can I open a book really dark? That's author Kim Taylor Blakemore reaching into a really dark place to find the delightfully uncertain story of Alice and her sister, Marion. I said, well, what, what do I want to do? And that Marion just came to me. So the scene just sort of flowed out at that mm. point. One of the things I really like about Marion, you just talked about her voice sort of came to you that she started uh, speaking to you. I think for me, one of the themes is this idea about voice, actually, right? We never actually hear Alice's voice except through Marion. Mm-hmm. Um, and her work, even as a nurse, really has to do with voice and speech. You know, how trauma, um, like I thought that was so interesting the way you wove that through about um, PTSD, that sort of trauma causing an issue with them being able to communicate, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I really wanted to see that within that one character who's one of the asylum wards and that he's there for his brother who was had been shot in the head. Yeah. Um, and that was really important to me to tell a story like that. Like, I'm here for my brother. We were both in yes. the war, but I had to stop, you know, uh, being a soldier to help him. Yes, and that's also uh, the, the role of sibling, the responsibility of sibling Mm-hmm. is a is also a theme in this story because yeah. I feel like from the very beginning you have Marion agonizing over guilt I think is the, is the emotion she's feeling about not, maybe not listening to Alice or not being there for Alice when she um, when she was first put into this asylum by the by the brother by a different sibling mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a lot that has to do with Uh, the sibling responsibility or the sibling care for each other. Uh, And I love that she's Alice's voice. Yes, yes. I love throughout they're trying to hear Alice's voice. It's almost like she's continually trying to hear her. She can't remember her voice. And the little boy says, oh, she spoke to me. Yes. Right. And then one of the wards says she spoke to me. But it's so I don't know what it is about Alice, but I'm always like, I wanted her to have a voice. She's dead in the story, but she's the main driver of what Marion does throughout. Okay, I want to make sure you caught that. Kim just said Alice is dead in the story. That first dark scene she conjured is a morgue in an asylum where Marion is claiming her sister Alice's body after Alice fell to her death from the roof of the asylum. That's the title, After Alice Fell. 
And we are going to be very careful in our conversation here not to spoil anything for you about the mystery at this novel's heart. From the very opening, we think there are three possibilities for Alice's death. Could be accident, could be suicide, could be murder. And I think you've done that with all of the deaths in the story. We're not really sure what's happened. There's an uncertainty about it. And I wonder like where that idea came from for you, like why that was a component to this, that things not being what they seem. So in any Gothic, the uncertainty is one of the tropes of Gothic. Is that uncertain? Um, is that really it? Am I hearing that right? Is that story right? Am I even telling my own story or lying about myself? So uh, it sets up this very um, low level unease as you're reading the book. You're like, questioning everything and that yeah. it really is just it's one of the things that you have as a stylistic element in it another element that is part of gothic or that sort of historical thriller area that i'm in is people are always on the edge of being sane mm. right so it's got that real line between what's insanity and what's not insanity right. in a story and that's super gothic when I was writing it to begin with, I have this, you know, the next scene after the first one, this doesn't give anything away, but they're bringing the body back to the house, Alice's body. And I was writing the carriage ride there and, and I'm writing it. And I'm like, there's something wrong with this. It's just a carriage ride to the house with the, the, the body behind them. It's just like, it's just boring. So I was like, I don't, I don't know what the Gothic elements are. There's got to be something. <laughs> so I went and I picked up a copy of of Laura Purcell's The Silent Companions, which scares the heck out of me. But the, it opens with a carriage ride, which, by the way, most Gothics have to have a carriage ride in there with either like <laughs> the Moors or something weird. So I read it. I'm like, oh, yeah, weird elements. I'm missing weird elements because hers had just strange fog and weird stuff in it. I said, OK, just have like cicadas buzzing in the background and have one fall by the window. Good. OK, you're Gothic. Keep writing. <laughs> You know, that's so interesting as a genre that I'm unfamiliar with, with what you're doing so stylized in your mm -hmm. writing. It's but when you describe it that way, you're absolutely right. Like that elicits emotion in the reader, you know, a sense of foreboding or unease. And there's something really, really exciting about that. Yeah. And you put in like little weird things like that, or like she's in that same carriage and she feels ice on the back of her neck. It's like, why? I don't know. But it causes her to turn and look at that asylum again. Yes. Right. So, yeah. And, I mean, I, my books are not truly Gothic. They use those elements, mm -hmm. which make it really fun. Yes, I agree. I had a lot of fun listening to this audiobook. I thought it was really captivating. Uh, you mentioned a little boy. So this is Toby in the story. Yes. He's eight years old. He's one of my favorite characters, actually. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciated the way you wrote him. I thought he was such a great little boy. And I think, I guess I just wanted to know, like, how you knew he was going to be such an important part of the storytelling, because I think he's really integral to understanding Alice and in his relationship with Marion. Yeah, I think he is the key to giving Marion, to let Marion hear Alice in her last years. Yeah. So Marion left, goes to the war leaves Alice to the care of her brother, which means she broke a promise with her sister because mm. she promised she would always take care of her. But there's Toby and he's he still has pieces of Alice in him. 
you know, they both love the forest and they love mm. magical things in the forest. And I think at the beginning, Marion's like, that's just the little kid. I don't like little kids, but he just keeps growing on her yeah. as the one beautiful ally she has that's still a connection to her sister. Yes, he is an ally. That's a really good way to think of it. My favorite line in the story is actually in Marion's head. She doesn't say it out loud, but she's with Toby and she's, she's thinking of things she might say to him. But in her own head, she says, she loved bees and black-eyed Susans and little boys and China teacups with painted landscapes and shoe buttons and whippoorwills. And when she laughed, it sounded like bells. I am rudderless. I had to pause and soak that in. I loved that line. Mm. Yeah. It's... We will pause the conversation there with that imagery rich line about what Alice loved. And let's go into the story. This is the opening scene of After Alice Fell by Kim Taylor Blakemore, narrated by award winning narrator, producer, and television actress, Amanda Lee Cobb. Is it her? The ward attendant holds up the oiled tarp. He chews on his dark mustache, blinks and clears his throat. I am sorry, Mrs. Abbott. I must ask. I clasp and unclasp my reticule, the metal warm between my thumb and forefinger, the click comforting, Steadying in this room with white tile walls and black grout, there's a single circular grate in the corner. Yellowed paint chips from the ceiling clog its pipe. The cold pushes through the floor, needles of ice that poke my thin-soled boots. Ill-chosen, meant for summer, not this chill room. But I hadn't thought. I put on the first pair I found, and last night's stockings, too, hung from the bedpost because I was too weary to put them away. A note delivered. Too blunt. Alice Snow, deceased. Please collect. The driver who delivered the note had waited, slumped against his handsome and fanning his face with a folded-up newspaper. His horse, roan and sway-backed, drooled and ground his teeth. The air shimmered and blurred the edges of the fence and abandoned barn across the road. It was too early and already too hot. I had missed an eyelet when buttoning my boots earlier, and now the leather cuts into my ankle. I rub the heel of my other shoe against it until the chafed skin burns. Paint chips drift into a crevice of the tarp's fabric. Stick like snow to the crown of this dead woman's head. Neat, straight part, and white-gray skin. Strands of ginger hair blood-stippled. A tangle loose and dangling. A mottled stretch of bruising across her forehead. I lower my gaze to the floor. There are divots there, hollows and gouges. Her body is cooled by a leather-strapped block of ice. The body who was Alice. Alice, so still. Alice under the tarp. Alice, my sister. She is not meant to be here. Her mouth agape, as if she were about to share a thought. Like she used to when she was very young. Her finger to her lip, a shake of that ginger-red hair. Then, Marion, I wonder, or... Marion, it's an odd thing. 
her voice trailing away as she swallowed the words or clamped her jaw because I interrupted, finishing out whatever it was she wondered about or found odd. Everything in and of itself, Alice, is so very odd that one must just consider it normal. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself mad. The attendant stares at me. It's her. He lowers the tarp, pulling it up to her forehead. It is too short. Her left foot pops free, a dark welt across the bridge, crisscrosses of cuts, thin, long toes. Maybe she'll wiggle them now, as she used to. Look, Marion, I'm royalty. Look at my middle toe. Look at its length. You'll need to sign the certificate. There, on the small desk by the square window that looks out on nothing, on a wall of brick and pipe, is the document. Smaller than I would expect. Simple and harsh. Record number 4573. Name, Alice Snow. Sex, female. Date of birth, February 3rd, 1841. Age, 24. Date of death, August 3rd, 1865. Cause of death, accident, acute mania. Signed, Lemuel Mayhew, M.D. I've seen too many of these, pinned too many to uniform lapels. I've seen so many dead. Antietam, Poplar Springs, Spotsylvania. Men stacked on carts, tarps too short to hide the high arches and missing limbs and nails roughly cut. I've signed so many letters, whispers from the soon dead to their loves. Forgive me, help me. I am almost at heaven, mother. One signature and Alice will be released. One signature to absolve this place of any responsibility for her slipping from the roof, absolve the staff from finding her body splayed on the pebble drive, half tangled in the sharp thorns of pink hedging roses. I dip the pen and hold it above the signature line, ink beads at the nib and splatters. What time was she found? I keep my eyes on the ink, watch it soak and spread along the short edge. His foot scrapes the stone floor. You'd need to ask Dr. Mayhew. But Dr. Mayhew isn't here. He's upstairs with my brother. You are here, Mr. Stokes. Russell Stokes. Mr. Stokes. The ink is a river now, rippling around the paper, a black frame around my sister's name, her death, the date. When I hand it over, he'll place it in the brown folder with her name printed neatly on the edge. He waits for me to sign. He is as cold as I am, has his arms crossed over his barrel chest and fists curled around his elbows. His eyes are a muddy hazel and flick with resentment. It's not his fault he's been assigned this duty. He taps his finger on the corner of the iced table. She didn't suffer. Yes, she did. I turn from the desk, holding out the official certificate officially identifying the now official death of my sister, Alice Louise Snow, and watch as the attendant shoots a glance at it before setting it atop the folder. She's afraid of the dark. I take my gloves from my pocket and fumble them on. I must find my brother. The door sticks as I open it and step into the hall. Low voices slip and mumble from both directions, from under other doors and away down the tunneled walk, 
away from the white tile room with black grout and my Alice too silent under the tarp. Metal wheels squeal and chitter behind me, loud and then silent. I stumble forward, my chest tight, hand grasping for the solid wall. The brick is chipped and scratched from too much use. Mr. Stokes's footsteps are heavy on the stone behind me, following with enough distance to keep out of my thoughts. The light is dull, just a slit of sun through high casement windows, heating the narrow glass and sheeting the interior with layers of dust. Don't follow me. I grab at my skirts and gather them. He reaches for my elbow. Best I help. I twist and claw away from his grip. Don't follow me. My sister lies on a bed of ice. Our brother Lionel waits in the garden. He's met with Dr. Mayhew, but refuses this task. They've left me to attend Alice, and now I am lost in a jigsaw of halls and occasional gaslit lamps bolted to the wall. Steam pipes run the length, banging and knocking. Mrs. Abbott? The attendant's voice slips around corners and then is gone. I follow the pipes through a door to a tunnel of red brick and a low, heavy arch. Lamps spaced 20 paces apart, and then another door to a hall with squared walls and rippled paint and metal latticed windows. A dance of signs, black iron, white letters, arrows every which way. Utility, store C, store D, room A13, utility B, morgue. I turn my back to that one, though I know if I follow that arrow, I'll be on familiar ground. I'll be back with Alice and can start again, trace my steps to the stairwell and up to the side door in the cheerful visitor's lobby. It's just a matter of steps, then, to the double doors and wide porch. Certainly Lionel will be waiting. He'll hand me up to the handsome cab. I'll take out my handkerchief and wipe my forehead. It's so very hot, I'll say, and watch the jonquils lining the long drive doze and dance in the sun. But I don't want to go back to Alice. I can't. I can't see her body on ice. Utility, store C, store D. My chest tightens. I press against the wall, hand to stomach, breath pulled through the nose. I scrape my fingers to the brick. I am lost here with Alice. She is meant to be alive. How can I tell her now how sorry I am? My knees give way. A door bangs, and there's Mr. Stokes lumbering over. He passes the doors, store C, store D, room A13. With a squat and humph, he's on his haunches. He blinks rapid fire and tightens his lips into a smile. We can't have this, Mrs. Abbott. Yes, I'm sorry. I flatten my free hand to the wall, let out a bark of a laugh. My heart slows. I'm not like this, really. It's the shock. It shouldn't bother me. I was a nurse. I'll help you up now. As he stands, he keeps a hold on my elbow, light like a comfort. There we are. Let's find your brother. I read something that said you were now working on a, your next novel had something to do with clairvoyance and mediums. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so interesting that this story is so steeped in trying to hear the voice of someone who's dead. And that, that sort of has percolated into your next novel. I don't know how that happened. 
<laughs> Actually, in the next novel, it's called The Deception right now. That title may change. Right. But the medium has lost her spirit guide, so she can hear nothing. Mm. So it's very like, wow, I have a, the, you're right. It's like the dead. She's trying to hear the dead in this and this one. She's trying to hear the dead and she, and then yeah. in the book that I'm just starting to research, I, I don't ask me why this is, but I'm reading the trial transcripts and a medium was at the trial transcript <laughs> at the trial. So I'm like, well, maybe I can use one of the mediums. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's a, it was a fascinating coincidence to me. It's super coincidental. <laughs> Yeah, but I think there yeah. is something like inherently fascinating. I think everyone, whether they would admit it or not, is inherently fascinated with the idea that someone who has passed, that we have are connected to, could somehow continue to communicate with us or gift us with their voice in some way. Like that's mm -hmm. a really alluring idea, right? I, it's wonderful. I've never heard anybody from my own family, but when I was young and very young, I was in uh, at Gettysburg on the battlefield and mm. an entire set of soldiers ran down the hill, passed me and threw me on a oh. hill. And I will remember it to this day. And I went and I told my mom, I said, I just saw soldiers coming down the hill. And she goes, that's because they're ghosts. And it's a very haunted battlefield. I wasn't the only person, but I remembered that to this day. I've had other moments like that, but that one was really, really clear. So I love that your mother didn't say, don't be silly. No, my mother wouldn't say that. My mother would totally believe that, especially there. I mean, it really is supposedly haunted. And yeah, I, I'm a skeptical believer. I think that's a great definition for like 90% of us, right? You know, yes. just a little skeptical, but I'm open. But it allows us to read these books that have that and really go, oh, I remember that feeling. I've had that feeling, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I think you're right that that kind of storytelling where you could see that that could happen. And I think it's a gift when a storyteller can create a situation that feels that way. So one of the other things that I think is a theme, it has to do with mercy. Mm. So you have this definition of mercy that the father, Marion's father gives her. Uh, mercy's not cruel. I think it's that simple, isn't it? Mercy's mm -hmm. not cruel. Mm -hmm. And later she sort of, um, she sort of adapts that, right? That basically mercy is complicated. So I wonder why you included that. I think that she doesn't give herself any mercy throughout the story. And, um, and I'm, I can't say I include those things like intentionally say these are the themes of the story. Some, right. They bubble up as you write. And then by the end of the story, I said, this book is about mercy and atonement. Hmm. That's what I feel it's about. Her mercy to herself, forgiveness to herself, mercy to others. But, you know, it's like when the, I don't know what it was. It was the thing about, it was really important when the father did what the father did. And he says that because it, it goes directly to what Marion does, which we can't tell anyone. No, no spoilers here. <laughs> no spoilers. But. but I think that's a great tease because I think showing mercy to ourselves is a challenging thing. We're mm -hmm. constantly second guessing the actions that we've taken and how they've yes. impacted others and the hurts yes. we may have caused. And sometimes we dwell in that in a way that is non-productive, you know, uh, 
almost creating a burden. Yeah. And it's like we, we either dwell in the, this is what we've done to people. So we tell stories about it to make ourselves feel better. Hmm. Or this is what we've done to people. And now I can't forgive myself at all. Instead right. of that place in the middle where it's like just sitting there, honestly facing what it is. And that's the atonement part. Yes. Give mercy to yourself, then atonement for your action. Right. So what do you think Marion's atonement is? Her sin to her was leaving her sister to her brother and leaving yes. uh, breaking a promise to her sister to go do something extremely selfish. Right. Mm -hmm. Which was not really selfish. Right. In her mind, going to serve the soldiers as a nurse is not selfish, but she turned that into that. It's a sin. I grew I I killed my sister. By I not think that's underneath here. it. By not being here, I am the one who caused her death. Yes. Yes. And she atones for that by relentlessly, fearlessly, fiercely. Yes. By seeking the truth. Yes. Absolutely right. Relentlessly looking for truth. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's scary. The situations she ends up in are scary. And I think that's the other thing that I really liked about this is that she's kind of told from the beginning, let it go. Just, just let it be what it is and let it go and shush. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she doesn't. No. And she won't just be quiet. And you really, I think that's the other part of the historical part of it that I thought was really interesting is how powerless, how voiceless women were in this time frame in so many ways, in so many different aspects of life. Yeah, they had to navigate where their power was. That, you know, they didn't have, when she came back from the war, there was absolutely no job she could do. They were, the, after the war, it was a depression. There were no jobs. And Marion starts off with nothing, no power, just a room in the house of her brother. No money. Right. Absolutely at their mercy. And she's not a person who, <laughs> personality-wise that that is a good fit with yes but it's so it's outside of her control yeah completely you know, it's amazing to think of so this is 18 we said 1865 yes right just not that long ago you know it feels like a long time ago but really you know god we've come a long way we have come a long way and even like in the next book i wrote it's in 1877 and even by then women had a broader spectrum of of jobs they could do and things they could do. So it's, it's really the change. I love watching that sort of change between 10 or 10 or so years. Uh, when Marion gets into the asylum and is sort of walked through what happens, what has happened to Alice, uh, how did you decide what of the, which of these treatments uh, to include and were they fictionalized by you? Because some of them are very dark. Or were those actual things that you found in your research? Those were actual things I found in my research. So that by the end, the last treatment she has were her. Uh-oh. So as I produced this, I realized you shouldn't hear about Alice's last treatment. It's one of those elements that is better experienced as you listen to the audiobook or read the book. But... I will let Kim share one of the other common treatments in the book that she gleaned from history. That was a real treatment that was used. 
rocks. There was also something that had to do with like really cold temperatures, right? There were baths that were. Yes, that was very common was to have ice baths. Also sounded. That's horrible. Traumatic, horrible. Very traumatic and leave people in those ice baths until they calm down and then take them out. They weren't great treatments at all. Yes. Um, I liked some of the other characters that she, that Marion interacts with there. There's a woman with starched skirts, a nurse. The way her skirt makes that noise. Yes, that stuck with me. Like, I can't remember her name. (laughs) That is so gothic. (laughs) Weird noises. Turns out I'm a big fan of gothic. Who knew? (laughs) So the other thing, let's see, the last thing, and you've given me so much of your time. Thank you. The podcast is called Desideratum mostly because when I was growing up, there was a poem called Desiderata that was like sort of a list of things you should strive for, advice. I like to ask the authors that are with me, and you could answer it as an author or as a person, really, any way you want. For you, what are the essential things? What's essential to you? Essential to me in life is my family and friends. Yeah. That's essential. Right. And, and spirituality. I think those three things together. So to me, there's a real spiritualism in the storytelling. And, and you were talking about the next book that you're going to write has some, mm-hmm. something to do with the medium. And we touched on it a little bit. But so how does that line up with your, your essential spiritualism? Like, where does that, how does that fit in the way that you write about spiritualism oh, and, and how you live it? I don't know. I'm not like into mediums or like seances or anything like that. I go to regular church. (laughs) (laughs) I could actually look at my books. If you broke them down and be like, these are very Christian in in terms of the the elements of morality and good and bad and evil and et cetera. That's all in there. Mercy, atonement. Mercy, atonement. Yes. And at, at one time I was like, you know, you should do the seven deadly sins of seven books. That'd be kind of fun. But I do think that's an interesting jumping off point because everybody, everybody yeah. can relate to how we struggle with greed and sloth and um, <laughs> what are, what are some sure of do. right? Like we... those are universal. Well, this was really fun thank chatting with you. Thank so you so much. I had such yeah, a good time. Me too. So thank good you. Question. You're like, in this part of the book, I'm like, what part of the book is that? (laughs) I know. I feel sorry for authors sometimes because I'm like with a microscope. (laughs) Wow. What did this mean? Why did you do that? And the author, meanwhile, has written two books since then. (laughs) You're deep in research and something else. Right, right. I'm asking you to remember what were you thinking right there? But But, you know, that part that you like the best when she talks about what Alice loves, that's my favorite part of the book. Oh, absolutely. My same favorite part. Yeah, it was written with a lot of heart. I yeah. can feel that. I love that part. Yeah, I'm like, I didn't write it. So I just feel sometimes I'm not writing it. It's just you just let it come through you. Really? Yeah. Whenever I get in my own way, mm-hmm. then I it's stilted. It's like I've chosen to make the characters do these things. Mm-hmm. But if I really just leave that sort of that I don't know what you call it it's like a very soft mind that lets the characters sort of do what they do it's much Mm -hmm. it's much more interesting I mean it's all in your unconscious right who the characters are I don't do any really any character work beforehand except just saying 
this is who they are. These are their relations to each other. And this is some main event that happened because I really want to be surprised by how they respond. So I learned them as they respond in scenes. Oh, wow. So you don't flesh out a full backstory. No. Wow. It just, <laughs> it's just organic as you're writing it. Yeah, I, I'll do a thing at the beginning that's sort of like how they see the world a little bit when they were born, oh. who their siblings were, something like that. And then how they see the world, like how they see people. That, that's such a telling part of everyone's personality, right? Mm-hmm. How you see the world. Are you inherently optimistic? Yeah. Are you inherently pessimistic? Are exactly. you un- are you untrusting? Are you right. selfish? Exactly. Yeah. yeah and if you are know you always thinking prime... that person's going to always want something from me, right? So then you st- you can start the story having them always like that person just wants something from me. So therefore, I don't right. trust them. You've just set up conflict. Yeah. Or someone's like, I trust everybody in the world. And you're like, oh, good. You're going to be the victim because <laughs> <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. That's but no, so... other writers, I'm sure you've talked to them, do full character yes. sketches. And I'm like, I need to see them on the stage. They need to be on stage and show me what they do. Right. But to start with their sort of primary mm-hmm. personality trait is mm-hmm. really, it's really all you need. When you know how they will respond in situations based on their internal clock yeah. and, how, and what, how they're set. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's we'll really see if this actually works book to book, but well, it definitely worked here. That's <laughs> oh, how this you. happened. This yeah, is yeah, for sure. Yeah, I didn't know who those people were. I'm just a dead body in a morgue. It's her sister. Boom. Grief, you know, great way to start a story. Grief. When you're ready to start listening to the story or reading the story, please visit Kim's website. KimTaylorBlakemore.com. She is also a novel coach and runs a writer's community called Noveletics. One of her wordsmith friends is one of my favorite people, Robert Gwaltney, whose novel The Cicada Tree is one of the stories I'm looking forward to sharing in 2022. Thank you to Robert for leading me to Kim. Thanks to Brilliance Audio for sharing Amanda Lee Cobb's mesmerizing narration. And thank you for listening to the Desideratum Podcast.